Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. This edition is sponsored by the Tricord Group, leading successful relationship constructs for over 25 years, and Vim, helping the architecture and design disciplines design, deliver, and operate better buildings for a better world. Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Joining me in the studio today is Paul Finch. Paul is the Program Director of the World Architecture Festival and the Editorial Director of the Architectural Review and the Architects' Journal. Paul resides in London. He's an extraordinary gentleman who has a firm grasp on the history of the architectural profession, its meaning and relevance today, and exciting views of where the profession is going in the future. Paul, thank you for joining me in the studio today. Great to be here. Well, thanks for joining me. There's so many things to talk about. Yeah, well, Uh, far away. So when we look at what's happening in global architecture, it seems that design education is a theme we could discuss for hours on end. Um, Design Intelligence, Design Futures Council has 50 members of the Design Futures Council or universities. And we're growingly concerned by the widening gap that seems to be between what the professional world needs and requires and what the students are being taught and maybe even what they understand going through their educational program. I'm wondering, has this always been the case, as you've observed over the last few decades, or are there some newer factors that are catalyzing this growing divide that we're observing? Well, unfortunately, I think there is a increasing gap between the assumptions that schools of architecture make about what they're there to do and what it is that practice expects of students coming to work for them as employees. And it's slightly mysterious as to why this why this gap has arisen and is widening. For example, it was routine, certainly in British schools of architecture, let's say, I don't know, 40 years ago, that students would have a working knowledge of or be taught about the properties, characteristics and attributes of different materials. I think this is completely untaught now. There was an expectation that students would, during the course of their education, be able to get on on construction sites and have some understanding of what it meant to actually make a building as opposed to simply designing one. And for all sorts of reasons, that's become more and more difficult. And I think the consequence is that, uh, and the danger is, that architecture is seen simply as a, a discipline which is concerned with the manipulation of space and volume, which of course it is, And that's about it, and that everything else should be left to other disciplines. I think this is very dangerous, and I I think it's come about because of... I give the British example where the academic requirements um, for getting sort of points on the research scale, which affects the amount of money that the institution may get from government or other funding sources, is to do with increasingly arcane research and of course if you design a building of course that's a form of research 
But in academic terms, it's not, because you'd have to design the same building in six different ways to find out what, what the differences were. That's become a problem. Whereas if somebody's an absolute expert in the way that, oh, I don't know, inns were used as magistrates' courts in 16th century England, this can be impeccably researched. And the only problem is that the people who know about that have never designed a building and they can't teach students how to do architecture. So, you know, there's a whole series of, of problems here, I fear. Yeah, I'm running across of so many firms that design intelligence meets with and engages with. And when you create a roundtable talking to the senior professionals of these groups, one of the, the most consistent complaints that's made is we have these wonderful students who are technologically brilliant. They can spin many plates at once from a software standpoint, but they fundamentally don't know how a building goes together. And I'm wondering, how does that happen? How do you go through four or five years of school and not understand the dynamics of how these materials work or don't work together, as you were noting? Yeah. Our impression in Britain is that actually... America is, 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 is doing better than we are. And one of the reasons for that is that the, the requirements, the sort of code requirements in America, which mean you have to do certain things and therefore you have to have knowledge about certain things. Whereas in Britain, it's far more loose. It's more, it's more a system of, well, you can do anything you like as long as you can prove it works. Now, the reality is that in architecture schools today, at least on, on this side of the pond, students are not taught, I would say, the real essence of construction and how buildings are put together and how it actually works. They do not go on site as they used to um, a few decades ago. That's partly because of health and safety issues, the reluctance of contractors to have sort of amateurs um, floating around on a site, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there's also a cult of um, the institutions themselves, that the academies regard themselves as powerhouses of intellect and ideas, and they regard the messy business of materials and the putting together of things on site as a kind of a secondary activity which can safely be left to practices to teach students when they finally arrive and start working for them. And the problem with that is that I think you start going on a downward spiral where within a couple of generations, you've got architects who don't really understand how buildings are put together because they haven't been subject to to the experience of that. You know, I think the exception to this is at Yale, where the first-year students in the program there actually build a house. They design the home, they handle procurement, and they show up with their tool belts, and they learn how to cut and nail and build a home. They touch materials, and those homes are then you know, put out into the communities where they build them for people to move in and live in. And and again, I, I bring that up because Yale is doing it more as an exception than what we're seeing across the U.S. educational space. Really interesting. I think it's, a, it's the welcome exception 
but then it's a terrible rule um, if if everybody else is not doing that. Isn't that and I think that, yeah. that I think there's another problem about this, which is that the business of building a house is one thing. But actually, what we're expecting architects to be able to do is to actually understand what it is that creates a successful complexity, let's say, in designing any um, sophisticated large-scale building. You know, it could be an office building, it could be a hospital, it could be a large school. And I think there's this sort of entirely false notion that big, complex buildings are just a scaled-up version of a small, simple building. And they're not. There's a point at which they are different in scope. They're different in kind. And I think that that sort of... I I think it's one of those things that if you can design a teaspoon, you can design a city. (laughs) Um, I don't buy it. Um, And I think that the the complexity uh, that we see in major projects now... Um, is something that uh, is student architects and young architects really need to get to grips with. And it's not the same thing as doing a big version of a house for their uncle. It's something completely different. Um, It's different in scale. It's different in type. And it needs to be taught. And I think it's a sort of repeating problem that the people in the schools themselves decreasingly have people who've ever worked on those sorts of projects you know everyone everyone could have done a house extension they might have designed their own house but how many of them have ever actually designed a hospital extraordinary when you think about it you and i spent some time in venice recently we were at the uh, celebration of the biennale architettura and you remember the american Uh, curated space and how elegant it was because it was simply a display of American stick-built homes uh, in the form. Remember the framing and how uh, elegant and simple it was? I think as ever, you know, I'm always interested in the American pavilion at the Biennale because generally it's one of the best pavilions. Um, And I think on this occasion, uh, what was fascinating was a sort of history of, of of vernacular building, you might say, but with architecture applied to it. So what can you make of simple materials and actually produce some rather extraordinary uh, structures, but at the same time allowing a sort of tradition of, of, of construction to take place? However, that was just one form of construction. And I think there's a whole other very powerful American tradition. You know, I'm thinking about the American tradition of, you know, the city hospital. Very complex buildings are often placed in the middle of cities, which which require an immense kind of understanding and engagement with a whole series of processes and a whole set of completely different sort of materials and an appreciation of, you know, what it is. I suppose hotels, hospitals, what is it that happens when an architect is supposed to be designing for a whole series of human interactions and engagements, which are entirely different in scope, you know, birth, death, illness, Etc. In the case of um, of a hospital, and in a hotel, um, 
you know, less extreme activities, generally speaking, but nevertheless, a series of complex activities. And that is, of course, entirely different to the production of domestic environments. And I think, you know, this is the great thing about architecture. It's, it's neither one nor the other. It's, it's both and all. And it wouldn't be enough to say that actually, uh, you know, if you can do a, a softwood uh, frame for a house in wherever it might be, that that's actually the answer to everything. It's not. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? You, you have had a storied career of uh, applying intelligent observation coupled with an articulate reflection of the architectural profession, the architectural artifacts in the form of buildings and bridges and tunnels and other things where architects and engineers uh, collaborate uh, in the built environment. You've done that for many years, and that has come across uh, as a way for us to understand as well as in many cases to celebrate design. Then later in your career, you have been one of the, 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 been the primary voice of founding the World Architecture Festival. What an extraordinary thing because I think the WAF, if we could refer to it as that, the WAF has done something different than pretty much any other gathering of design professionals in an associative way to truly celebrate design through the uh, juried competitions that you you have established through that. I'd, I'd like to understand, so why did you want to start the WAF? Uh, what was missing that you saw across other architectural or design convenings that you felt the WAF needed to speak into and needed to fill that space. Tell, tell us more about what took you in that direction. Well, I go back to the, the period when I was editing Architectural Review, an international architecture title, very long established, you know, founded in 1896, and certainly post-1945, far more interested in, in global architecture than in what was happening just in uh, the UK. And the, the publishing company that owned the Architectural Review, EMAP, also owned the Architects Journal. And we looked at all the events that architects attended. Um, and of course, some of those were just events for architects, you know, national, like the AIA convention or the RIBA annual conference. Um, what slightly um, baffled us was why it was that you could go to big international real estate events, MIPIM in Cannes in France, an annual event, Cityscape in Dubai and elsewhere in the, in the Middle East and beyond. And you would find lots of architects going to those events. And it was almost felt like they were looking for crumbs from the table that, um, you know, if they hung around long enough, then some developer might notice them. Um, that's a slight exaggeration. Yes, but they, it, sort of it was a kind of feeling that that's what it was. So, you know, we're sitting there as publishers and, you know, editors of the Architecture Review thinking, well, why isn't there a global event where architects, instead of being bit part players and hangers on, 
uh, why why isn't there an event where they are the stars? And uh, we looked at this. And we thought, wouldn't it be great if there was such an event? And we did our research. We were pretty certain that there wasn't any such event, at least not an annual event. And what we discovered or confirmed was, yes, you had the you had the Venice Architecture Biennale, but that was every other year, and it was curated. So you know you could only ever exhibit there if somebody chose you. You had the International Union of Architects, the UIA, with a triennial convention. They had awards of a sort, but it was mainly mainly conference and, and discussion. And so we're thinking to ourselves, well, why don't we do an annual global event for architects where we can see what is everybody doing at the moment? What have they been doing over the past year? Um, can we compare and contrast? Can we celebrate? And so on and so forth. And we did our research. We started talking to architects. We had a big database because of the architectural reviews subscription list. So we talked to people and said, well, would you be interested if we were to um, create an, a global event for architects? We got a positive response. And the question for us then became, okay, how can we make an event unique? Because it wouldn't be enough to, for it to be a conference. You know, there, there are lots of conferences to do a, a global conference. Um, and that alone uh, didn't seem to be at all satisfactory. What people really wanted to see was what are architects designing across the world right now? And we decided that the, the best way to show that was to have a global award scheme where it wouldn't matter whether you were big or small or known or unknown, everybody could enter it on an absolutely equal basis. And that was the the sort of bedrock or the, the sort of, you know, the, the foundation stone of World Architecture Festival or WAF. And we then thought, okay, we get people to enter awards, but, you know, there are lots of awards. How do we make ours different? And also, how do you judge uh, buildings if you're doing a global awards competition where you can't possibly be expected to go and visit everything that's being entered because it would be physically impossible. And so our conclusion was, first, we will shortlist on the basis of entries and the designs that are, that are shown on A2 boards, rather conventional idea. But then we will ask the shortlisted architects to attend the live event and themselves to present live to international juries and to delegates who want to be in the room when the presentations take place. And those presentations and the Q&A with the judges were our substitute for actually visiting uh, the buildings. And we didn't know whether this would work, quite honestly. I mean, right, right. We, we, tr we tried it out. People said, yeah, we think that that will be okay. We didn't know how many entries we would get. We didn't know whether people who were shortlisted would actually turn up at the event. We didn't know anything. But <clears throat> we took a leap of faith, if you like. This is back in 2007, 2008. We launched, and we got a fantastic response. Um, and it was... 
you know, the festival is, is a sort of big event. You can't do a small-scale version of this because it has to be a scale event where you get lots of entries, you get lots of shortlisted architects, and that means you will need lots of international judges to actually give the event some sort of impetus. And it kind of worked. We overlaid on top of that, you know, conference program and so on and so forth. But the real heart of the whole thing is a celebration and an examination of architectural excellence. And that has continued through to this day. That's just extraordinary. And I'm looking forward to seeing what more is going to come out of the World Architecture Festival in years to come. And I I think that uh, I'm looking forward to to coming to the next physical event that you have. I think we're hosting a virtual event this year. Is that correct? In, um, in Lisbon in December? Yes, we've had to do, we were really hoping we'd be able to do a live event in Lisbon this December. But the, the problem, you know, post pandemic is that so many of our shortlisted architects were prohibited by national governments or quarantine conditions from attending the event that we thought it was just going to be so unfair to have people there, people who weren't there. So we thought, right, we're going to do everything online this year. And we're in, right in the middle of, of that process um, as we speak of doing the same system so that everyone who's shortlisted presents, but they present online, they present to international judges, but we've had to, we've had to um, coordinate the time zones of the people who are presenting with the time zones of the judges and you can imagine oh this is goodness. a bit of a yeah it's it, it, it's a bit <laughs> of a logistical uh nightmare i think would be the right way to put it we're doing it it's going to work we um and we can do it we will do it and, and and it's already started happening but it's going to be so much better when we get back to a live event. We'll be, be back in Lisbon at the end of uh, 2022 to do it again. And I think that the, the great thing about this is, um, David, is that what you get from this comparison is you can see how different architects from different cultures, different geographies and different backgrounds are addressing the same sorts of issues in their own ways. And sometimes the results are very similar and sometimes they're rather different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and what's fascinating is that the sort of learning experience you get from seeing, well, actually, you know, how the Chinese dealing with the question of retail or elderly housing compared with what they're doing in Scandinavia or Chile and so on and so forth. And I think that's what gives the whole event is real fascination. It's this comparing and contrasting in a constructively critical environment. I, I, just, I just can't wait to, to be there and be a, a fly on the wall doing exactly that. It's a really a learning environment that's been established. You know, it is said that the future is perhaps best predicted from looking to the past. So looking over the past decades of your career, and you are an amazing historian, what can you tell us about the possible future of the built environment from what you've seen coming through the last 40 or 50 years? Well, I think, I suppose the first thing to say is that 
<clears throat> I've just been reading a book um, called Radical Uncertainty, which is a sort of corrective to the idea that anybody really knows what's going to happen next week, let alone in the next decade or by 2050 or whatever it may be. However, I mean, history is all we've got. And I think that the if I look back and try to think about let's say, what were we thinking about in, in the 1970s and what the built environment might be like? And I think, you know, we've just been going through COP26 and, of course, the, the absolutely understandable and correct concern with climate change. But it's quite interesting to look back, let's say, to the oil price crisis of 1973, 1974, uh, the result of military action and political action uh, in the Middle East. You know, the Saudis shoving the price of oil up to unprecedented levels and causing sort of economic mayhem um, throughout, throughout the Western world. And at that time, the environmental argument about the future was that we had to do something about fossil fuels, not because they generated carbon, but because they were going to run out. And the, you know, the prophets of doom were saying that, you know, the, there won't be any more oil and there won't be any more coal and there won't be any more this, there won't be any more that. And it was complete fantasy and nonsense, of course. And unfortunately, I think there was an overhang from the warranted scepticism about those sorts of that sort of doom mongering so that when the real problem which really is a real problem about carbon and global warming came up i think for a period there was just skepticism that it was just another set of doom mongering um just like all that stuff about you know there, there wasn't going to be any any fossil fuel production left and I give one really interesting example, which is controversial, but let's face it, America has managed to get the Middle East foot off its neck as far as, as energy is concerned right. uh, through fracking. Now, fracking, you know, is gas, not coal, so it's, it's more virtuous. There is still a huge controversy about fracking, you know, partly in the States, but even more in the UK, where we, we haven't done any fracking because of, I, I think, the sort of scaremongering <laughs> that that we, we associated with when coal mines first started, which is if you dug into the ground that cows would fall down and die and the sun would stop shining, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's one context, which is the sort of overhang of past attitudes to... Uh, energy production i think the other thing is that the what derived from that was and i think we mentioned this phrase um uh, at, at the di event in in venice um there was a, a president of the royal institute of british architects who in 1974 coined this phrase to say that the sort of buildings that we should be doing in light of the assumed energy crisis at that time uh, which was long life, loose fit, low energy. And I guess if we were using that phrase today, we would say long life, loose fit, low carbon, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. same difference. I think it was a very wise, um, it was a very wise phrase and it pointed to 
a whole modernist tradition of less is more. And, you know, why don't you maximize the advantage of any, uh, any particular condition to get the most out of it from what you can for the minimum use of resources? And I think that that, I, I would take certain lessons from the past to inform the future. And I'll give another example. I mean, he's not such a well-known figure now, but the um, teacher and I suppose kind of architectural philosopher in a way, Jan Herbracken, um, who was kind of a, a big noise in the in, in the 70s. And he had this notion of um, the idea of the open building where you basically create envelopes within which all sorts of things may be able to fit over time without huge adaptation of uh, the building itself. And and he has a sort of um, kind of cult following um, in the, the Netherlands and elsewhere, and they call it the open buildings uh, group. And I think that fits in very well with long life, loose fit, low energy. You create structures that do not need to be demolished every 25 years, like a you know, like a Hong Kong office building. You create structures that last, but you create the circumstances in which all sorts of uses can be plugged in. So some of those ideas from yesteryear, which may not have been followed up in extensively or in huge depth at the time. You start to look back at the past and see who who was saying things about um, which look relevant to our current condition, which maybe we should have paid more attention to at the time, and maybe we can use that as some sort of mainspring or inspiration for how we might work going forward. And the other thing is that uh, about this, which I think can't be ignored, because. You know, construction of materials, yes, a building has to have structure and it has materials, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the element which is completely changed now, which which is why I think we need to be a bit careful about making predictions about the future, is the impact of, um, let's call it micro-technology, possibly even nanotechnology. I mean, probably... 20 years ago, if somebody said, well, what's going to make the most difference to the construction industry in the next 20 years? People might have thought of all sorts of things. They probably wouldn't have said the mobile phone. But actually, if you then extended that and said, well, and let's take it back to, say, 40 years, what's the biggest change in the whole of the construction sector? The answer is handheld. You know, the mobile phone is just one example, but actually drills, you know, all sorts of things that can now be done on site, which couldn't not that long ago. And we can't predict, of course, where exactly um, technologies will, will take us. But I think what we can say is that we should be quite wary of assuming that the way that we're going to build buildings, you know, over the next 20, 30, 40 years will be the same as what we've been doing in the last 10 or 20 because the evidence of the last 10 or 20 is that there could be some really profound and fundamental changes. And I think that's massively positive because these, these changes, I think, have generally been very good, especially, you know, one final point on this is that um, the, the whole business of, of recycling. So 
not that long ago, the assumption was that it was perfectly okay. You knock down a building, you put up another one, who cares? Now we're saying, but actually, all that embodied carbon in the existing building, do we really want to just waste that and then generate a whole load of more carbon to do the replacement? I mean, couldn't there be something where we use a bit of the old, et cetera, et cetera? Now, the technologies of recycling, even if you're knocking down a building and replacing it, what you do with the materials that you're demolishing, I think is really, really interesting. And I think one of the really interesting things at the moment is how, let's say, the cement and concrete industry have got their own net zero targets where they're saying, well, actually, we can recycle stuff in the same way that the aluminium industry could recycle stuff. It's a bit more complex, but it's definitely doable. And if we start thinking about that kind of circular economy stuff, it puts the construction industry in a rather different light to the assumption, I think, that I think the false assumption on the part of many critics is that is construction is an enemy of the environment. I don't think that's true at all but it can certainly become a much more virtuous player. This has just been extraordinary. We've been conversing with the inimitable Paul Finch. Uh, Paul, I'm hoping you'll join me again. Maybe we should have a series of these dialogues. There's so much for us to consider into the future when we look in our rearview mirror, when we look to the future out our windshield as we're driving along here. I think there's so much more for us that is important for us to discuss. Would you consider joining me some more? David, of course. I mean, this is, you know, I think construction is almost the definition of, of civilization. We, we are what we build, and w- we shouldn't be frightened about this. We should approach all this in really an optimistic spirit, you know, with a belief in technology, but suitable suspicion about potential downsides fantastic. Until next time, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of This is Design Intelligence, sponsored by the Tricord Group and Vim. The producer for This is Design Intelligence is Laura Spells, sound engineering by Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.